Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm so glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about whether gay men can donate blood here in Canada and how to feel like you're part of the LGBTQ2S plus community as a bisexual. I also share my interview with the halal sex expert, Dr. Shakira Abdullah. We talk about the workshops that she teaches, such as Get Clitorate and What That Mouth Do, Oral Sex, Fellatio, and Foreplay, and really, if there is space in the sexual health world for educators who come from very different perspectives. But first, today in sex. Going to the chapel and we're gonna get married. I mean, you know that... I'm already married, and I'm I'm so sorry, Teresa and Jill, if you are listening to this. I, w- I promise not to sing that at your wedding next weekend. But that's all to say that next weekend, I am so excited to be going to, in their words, a big queer wedding that's at a ranch. I literally am bringing my cowboy boots to the shoe repair shop so they can make sure they are all in good shape for this weekend because we're going to the middle of nowhere. You literally drive on a dirt road for over an hour outside of this tiny town in the middle of British Columbia, which is a province where Levi and I live. I think the reason that I'm so excited to go to this wedding is because it shows that weddings themselves can match whoever it is who's getting married. It it can match their values, the things that they find important. And it's not always this cookie cutter idea of what a wedding or what the people who are getting married should look like. So our friends who are getting married, one of them is Levi's god sister who he grew up with in 100 Mile, and another is one of our really good friends, younger sister. I was recently telling a friend about us going to this wedding and about how it's these two queer women who grew up in a small town, didn't know each other, left that town and met in Vancouver, and then moved back to that small town to build their life together. And when I was telling a friend this, she said, you know, this sounds like a Hallmark movie that would be great to see, but will never get made because it's too diverse. Unfortunately, they're right, but I'm so excited that in real life, we actually get to go and have these experiences and celebrate the love between two really amazing people. And on top of that, this wedding is going to match these two people so well. On the first night, it's a barbecue-themed dinner with Western dress. As I said, cowboy boots are coming out, flannel, I don't know, assless chaps, who knows, and there'll be s'mores and a bonfire. The other really amazing thing about this entire wedding weekend is that everyone who arrives will be getting a name tag that also has their pronouns. As I was looking through their wedding website, I realized how much intention and care they had put into making this a fun and safe environment for everyone who's going to be there. I don't know about you, but I've never been on a wedding website where there is specifically a link for ally resources. So this is what Teresa and Jill say on their website about the ally resources that they share. We know that our friends and family love us and want to make us feel safe, and we want you to feel safe also. That is why we've compiled these resources on how to be an ally to your LGBTQIA community. Knowledge is power. And if you still have questions, don't hesitate to reach out. I think that's such a beautiful concept for people to come into that space knowing that they're going to be seen for exactly who they are and they can just enjoy themselves and not feel like they are on guard the entire time. And now, just because it's stuck in my head, maybe I'll just play just a little bit of that song. Going to the chapel and we're gonna 
And now let's get to your calls. Hey, pal. I was listening to your podcast today with Marcus Territory, and I found it really interesting about like his experience and him saying like microaggressions about uh, like females asking him about sleeping with men. I give blood regularly, and that's one of the questions that's asked when you give blood. So in my experience, I've asked people, but it's more as like a, okay, I just need to know because that means that I won't be able to give blood for another three months. Uh, and so that's, I just thought I would point that out and say, interesting. Keep up the good work, Leah. Thank you so much for your question, Zoe. This is actually a good friend of mine and Levi's who was actually just featured in the latest video on Levi's YouTube channel. But I'm even more honored that you take the time to listen to this podcast, Zoe, and that has been helpful to you and make you think about all of these other aspects in your life that maybe we don't think are related to sexual orientation or the assumptions that we have, but actually have some pretty intense impact on people because of their sexual orientation. So when it comes to donating blood here in Canada, there is a three-month waiting period policy, and this is for men who have sex with men. For people who haven't heard this term before, men who have sex with men, or MSM, it's a way within especially the medical community to talk about men who do have sex with each other but may not identify as gay or bisexual. The hope of this term is to be more inclusive, but in some ways it doesn't actually work that way. So let's see what the Canadian Blood Services says about this three-month waiting period that you talk about, Zoe. So they say that men who have sex with men account for the largest proportion of new HIV infections reported in Canada. And the three-month waiting period was implemented in 2019 as the next incremental step toward more inclusive blood donor criteria. Our goal is to maintain the safety of the blood supply while being as minimally restrictive as possible. What's important to note that before 2019, it used to be a one-year waiting period for men who have sex with men to donate blood. And this is based on the assumption that men who have sex with men have a higher likelihood of having HIV. But I know some of you are probably wondering, what about blood testing? Like, wouldn't that eliminate the problem since all of the blood is tested before it is administered to folks who need it? Yes, that is true. But there's a caveat. The antibody and nucleic acid amplification testing, or NAT, to test blood for HIV was introduced in 2001, and it really greatly reduces the length of time that HIV can go undetected in a person infected with the virus. However, there is still like an approximately nine-day period shortly after an infection when an individual can transmit HIV, but the virus is not detected by these tests. Now, according to Canadian Blood Services, that's why they use screening questions before a donation is made as part of a multi-tiered safety system to protect patients. Now, I understand absolutely that we want to make sure we are that we are ensuring a safe blood supply to people. But this also includes the pathologizing of sexual activities. Obviously, it's not only men who have sex with men who engage in anal sex or who have multiple sexual partners. There is a fear that in terms of sexual activities that have a higher likelihood of STI transmission, anal sex is the highest. But we know every year that more and more people are engaging in anal sex, and this is not just something that happens between men who have sex with men or folks with penises having sex with each other. There's also this assumption that men who have sex with men are more promiscuous or having multiple sexual partners. 
So what is being done to address these assumptions is actually a study about understanding the general population impact and opportunities for changes to blood donation um, and what that criteria is for men who have sex with men. That's being conducted by one of my supervisors at the University of Victoria, Dr. Nathan Lachowski. This is an ongoing study to see what that impact is on communities. Is that stopping gay, bisexual, or men who have sex with men from donating blood because they fear that stigmatization of coming forward? And as you were saying, Zoe, these microaggressions that Marcus Territory talked about, about being openly bisexual, there are assumptions that are made that are infiltrating into our medical systems and are impacting people in a ways that really are not very inclusive. But I'll let you know that the UK actually has a far more inclusive policy. They say that gay and bisexual men are not automatically prevented from giving blood. Okay, that's a step in the right direction. So men who have sex with men and who have had the same partner for three months or more and meet the other eligibility criteria are able to give blood. Anyone who has had anal sex with a new partner or multiple partners in the last three months, regardless of their gender or their partner's gender, must wait three months before donating. So this is really the thing here. We're talking about anal sex. We're not talking about sexual orientation. And in these other systems that we have, that seems to be the conflation that is being made. But I want you to know that even though the UK has these more progressive ways for people to donate blood... This didn't come into effect until June of 2021. That is this year. And what about the fact that over half of the world's cases of HIV are actually in women and folks with vulvas? Obviously, Canada, we have a long way to go, but I will let you know that that three-month waiting period in order to give blood is actually one of the shorter periods in the world in terms of blood donation. Thank you so much, Zoe, for asking this question. I had not dug into this literature or this work, but it's really important to acknowledge that these assumptions and biases that we have can really impact our ability to give back into communities that can be really meaningful to us. Giving blood is really important to a lot of people, and if that is stopped based on your sexual orientation, that can be a really upsetting experience. I've shared a whole bunch of excellent resources talking more about blood donations and what those eligibility rules are. There's also a great article from a legal team talking about the legality of eligibility requirements to donate blood, and they talk about lots of other ways that our blood donation services can be more inclusive. So I highly recommend checking that out. Let's take another call. Hi, Leah. My name is Lynn, and I am a proud, bisexual, cisgendered female, much like yourself. And so I am curious as to what your thoughts are on experiences that I had while I was coming out and continue to have to this day. Uh, I just want to start off and say that my friends and family were incredibly supportive of me during my coming out journey and continue to be so to this day. But I often got comments and still do when it comes up with new people now, such as, oh, where's your pride bumper sticker? Or, oh, that's amazing, you must have dressed up and taken part in the LGBTQ pride parade that just happened. Or people will ask if they can meet up with my group of only LGBTQ plus people because they think it would be really fun to meet this group of people. But I don't have a group of friends that is only a part of the community and I don't have a bumper sticker on my car and that's not because I'm not proud. It's more simply because being bisexual is a part of who I am and I don't feel the need to introduce myself as such or display myself as such. It is inherently a part of me 
And so I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on those expectations that people have of members of the community or what it means to be a member of the LGBTQ community. Thank you. And I purposely left a little bit of a gap there so you can edit it so I can take two seconds to gush about how amazing this podcast is and how much I appreciate everything you're doing to broaden people's horizons and to make a difference in the lives of a community that struggles. And I just want to say thank you. It means a lot. And I am almost sad to say that I am a new listener because I should have started as soon as you put your first episode out last June. But I'm glad I found you now. And thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Lynn. And it does. It does sound like we have a lot in common. First, I'm really glad to hear that your family has been so supportive. And thank you so much for your kind words about the podcast. Okay, now let's talk about these folks who are asking you to basically like prove how bisexual you are by asking you to show your pride. Now, a rainbow bumper sticker is amazing, and so is going to a pride parade. But it's not these things that make us bisexual or not, or make us legitimate members of the LGBTQ2S plus community. What I'm wondering, are these questions coming from straight friends who are actually wanting to be allies, or do they want to appear like they're allies by hanging out with queer people and waving their own pride flags? Now, when it comes to bisexual folks in the LGBTQ2S plus community, what my friend Chris Angel told me is an initialization and not an acronym, by the way, since each part of the community stands alone as an identity. If I don't know more about that, see my interview with Chris Angel that I did back in July. However, we know that of the folks who identify as LGBTQ2S plus in the United States, about 56% identify as bisexual. And in Gen Zers, 72% identify as bisexual. And despite these high numbers, we know that bi folks often feel isolated and they face stigma because we just feel like we don't fit in anywhere. And this can contribute to folks trying to police our queerness, trying to measure it and see if we come up gay enough based on whatever measure that they have decided. Our sexual orientation and how we decide to share that with the world is up to us. And if we choose to lead with that aspect of ourselves... That's wonderful. And if we decide to keep it more private, not closeted, but private, then that's also entirely valid. For myself, I go through phases of feeling like I need my identity validated and others where I feel very grounded in who I am. I never doubt that I'm bisexual, but I worry that I don't, I don't look the part, that I look too femme or I won't fit into queer spaces, that I won't be seen as queer because I'm married to a man. But, and this is a huge but, I hold immense privilege as a straight-passing person, and that means I have a responsibility to have those difficult conversations with people who are homophobic and don't know that I'm queer. I haven't had to deal with the world shitting on me because of my sexual orientation to nearly the same extent as many other members of the LGBTQ2S plus community. So no, there's no rule that you must wear your bi identity at the forefront or cover your car or bicycle with pride flags but it is important to constantly practice our allyship, to recognize the intersections of our identities that overlap and diverge, and to leverage the privilege that we do have to hold space and amplify the voices of those we don't hear from enough. Oh, and this person wanting to like hang out with a group of LGBTQ2S plus community, like 
is that the only part of their identity that they want to engage with? Like when we bring just one aspect of a person's identity to the foreground and say, I want to hang out with this person because of blank, we're, we're denying their personhood and the complexity of who they are and just trying to make them fit into this one dimensional mold. Now, I applaud this friend's desire to maybe diversify their friend group uh, to be more queer inclusive. But when you're friends with someone, there's usually something else you're interested in talking about other than who they may or may not be sleeping with. Okay, well, I mean, I could spend all day just talking about that, but you, you know what I mean. Of course, I've left some great resources about being an ally to folks who are bisexual, and I highly recommend checking out the many amazing articles on the Scarletine website. Literally type in bisexual into their search bar and a ton of things will pop up that are super helpful. And now, I am very excited to share my interview with the halal sexpert, Dr. Shakira Abdullah. Dr. Abdullah is a sexologist and sexuality educator who teaches sex ed from an Islamic perspective. While her and I have differing views on quite a few things and different approaches to sex ed, it was really amazing to see the overlap in our work and the importance of teaching from our values. Now, if you also want to see a side-by-side -side comparison of the vulva puppets that each of us use in our work, head to my Instagram at dr.leatidy or to Shakira's at the halal sexpert. Without further ado, here is Dr. Shakira Abdullah. Hello, Dr. Shakira Abdullah. Actually, before we get going, what, what would you prefer? Dr. Shakira, Dr. Abdullah, what, what works for you? You can either, you go back and forth between Dr. Shakira and Dr. Shakira Abdullah. I teach nursing students, so they call me Dr. Abdullah. That's how I kind of distinguish between like where do you know where you know me from. Yeah. But with like, you know, all the sexuality work that I do, I'm Dr. Shakira or Dr. Shakira Abdullah. Nice. Well, I know yeah. when you and I first started talking, like it's always so interesting knowing, like you said, when you wear multiple hats, you have multiple roles. Yeah. It's kind of nice to be able to differentiate, but also being like young female academics, I'm like, well, heck yeah. Like I want to use my doctor title. I worked hard for this. So. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. So I might, I might do a bit of a, a bit of a mix because we're going to be talking in lots of different contexts about the work that you do. So. Okay. Yeah. So do you want to start by telling me a little bit about yourself, you know, your work as a sexologist and a sexuality educator, um, just a little bit about you? Yes. Yeah, so I started this work when actually I was getting my doctorate degree in nursing and it's a clinical doctorate, but we had to do this, you know, big study in order to graduate. And I decided to do my study in a masjid, so that's a Muslim place of worship, with sex education. So I took the sex education curriculum that was already proven effective, that was already, like, validated by Dr. Loretta Sweet Jama. I actually met her, like, at a conference, and she was speaking about how she was doing all this great, like, sex education work in innovative spaces, like, barbershops and hair salons and churches. I was like, oh my God, I can do it in a masjid. So <laughs> she was like, oh, and I'll help you. I like chased her down. She was on her way, like out the conference to catch a flight and I chased her down. And that's where everything started. So I did that study um, and then it got a lot of publicity and like all these different Muslim communities after I did that study kind of like put me on this pedestal, like, okay, well, you have to come here. We're having this problem with, you know, no one else has, I never heard any other, you know, Muslim person doing this and we need this. Um, so I got requests from Australia and the UK and all over the, the United States. And it was just like, oh my gosh, like 
like, what do I do now? Like, I just did this one study. I have my doctorate degree in nursing. We don't talk about sex at all. Like, where? So from there, my um, advisor was like, well, what are you going to do next? You can't just, you know, you see that there's such a need for this in your community. Um, so that's when I started the human sexuality program at Widener University. And it turned out great because I was able to still use my doctoral degree as a nursing professor here at Widener. And then I am also a student in their human sexuality program and their PhD program now. Wow. So you're going to be a double doctor by the end of it is basically <laughs> what you're telling me. <laughs> yes. Right. That's amazing too. Like you said, like you would clearly, you would hit on this gap in education and this niche where, as you said, communities around the world being like, I don't know anyone else who is Muslim and a sexual health educator. And clearly there's a desire to know more. There's like a hunger for this knowledge and how amazing that you could to to offer that. But I can imagine a bit overwhelming when it first started. You're like, oh my gosh, where do I even begin? Yes. It was like, you know, because everyone thinks that you know it all. And it's like, I just did this one study, you know, I did this, it was something that I, I loved it, you know, it was so much fun, but I really didn't know a whole lot about the sexuality world and like, you know, how do I talk to my kids about this? How do I, so I have to really kind of like backtrack and get all of that knowledge and um, kind of gain experience at the same time with doing the work that I do. Um, so now I'm at a level where it's still so much worse to learn and I'm always learning something new every day but I'm at a level like okay yeah I'm like I I am the halal sex story like I have you know gotten to a level where I do feel somewhat comfortable with the material Mm -hmm. that's excellent and I I think you know as you know you and I kind of occupy like different spaces but both being sexual health educators who share our work online, there is kind of an assumption that people are going to ask you questions about so many different things and they just want your opinion on it. And you're like, ooh, um, not an expert in this. So like you said, you are the halal sexpert, which I love. When that came across my feed, I was like, this is fantastic. I have to follow her. Like, <laughs> brilliant, funny. Like, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're, we're going to talk more about some of the workshops that you offer as well, like Get Clitorit and But What That Mouth Do. And there's so many fun things. So maybe talk to me a bit about as you were kind of building that online presence and also your own work and creating these workshops, like how did you come to these uh, these few workshops that you wanted to teach? You also have some about parenting as well. Yeah, talk to me a bit about how did you come to be like, okay, this is what I'm going to focus on for now. It actually, again, similar to how the community came to me with all their different needs, they came to me again through their needs. So I started off with youth, so I was doing a lot of work a lot of work with Muslim youth with these sexuality, different workshops and um, building curriculums and stuff like that. And then um, the Muslim youth would always come to me and say, you know, Dr. Shira, I can only talk to you about this. So you're the only one who I feel comfortable with was talking about, you know, anything related to sexuality. Like I can't talk to anyone else. I was like, well, there's only one of me. I can't be good enough. not good enough. So then it was like, well, I don't feel comfortable talking to my parents. They don't know. So I was like, well, maybe I'll come up with a parent course. So that's what, that's where it went next. So I created this parent course and the parents loved it. They feel like, you know, their parents didn't talk to them about sex. So they weren't talking to their children about sex. And it was just um, sex in Islam. Well, a lot of in the Muslim communities was looked at as this taboo thing. So they really didn't know where to start. 
So helping them through that course was first. And then I had my single friends with no children. Like, well, what about us? Like, you <laughs> you, need to, you need to do something for us. And then my married friends were like, us too. Like, we need a workshop too about, you know, there's nothing out there, you know, for us because they hold close to like, you know, their religious values. Um, and they just said, you know, I really feel comfortable because you get it. You know, you understand, you know, both worlds. So mm-hmm. that's where just, where different needs were within the Muslim community is kind of where it's like, okay, well, I can build something for you. Yeah, absolutely. And and I love that as well, like you said, because, you know, you you talk about Islam as a sex positive religion, right? And it's really important that you, you offer that sex education from that perspective. Because I think even in my own training, I see a lot of people who look exactly like me, like white cis women being like, I'm going to be a sex educator. You're like, okay, that's one perspective they were hearing from. So why was that important to you to offer that, you know, from that Islam perspective and be able to offer it to the Muslim community? Because I I felt like a lot of Muslims had this misconception that that was a part of our religion, that we were, you know, being sex negative, I guess, or not like looking at sex as this dirty thing and this dirty word and something that we're not supposed to talk about. They thought that was a part of being religious and a part of being a spiritual person. Like you can't do both. And it was like, no, that's not from our religion at all. Like that viewpoint came a lot from, you know, colonialism and Puritan view. That's not the Islamic view. So taking them back and giving them history lessons and um, going into what the Quran says, you know, our um, religious texts and then also different um, prophetic teachings about sex. And it's just like, this was not, this is not something that is a negative thing. And this is something that, you know, God created sex in the first place. Um, this is something he wants you to experience in a beautiful way. He created our body parts and all of these different things. And, you know, he wants us, he wants you to have a pleasurable experience. So once they have a lot of Muslims have that kind of like aha moment, it's like, okay, well, you're not doing anything wrong by telling us this. But sometimes I do get black backlash from Muslims who just don't know, who just, again, adopted that view that sex is this dirty thing. But after realizing like, oh, that's not a part of Islam. That's not a part of our religion. Islam actually values you having a healthy sexual um, experience. So, you know, once they have that aha moment and they see that, then they, you know, they want to learn more. Yeah. I think it's, it's really important that you indicate kind of those larger you know, social contexts have an impact on it, right? Like colonialism and racism, those things will absolutely have an impact on how we understand sexuality. And then also patriarchy and misogyny. How are we going to understand, you know, embracing female pleasure and getting clitorate, if I may, if you're not recognizing the fact that, you know, our, our bodies are beautiful and designed to experience pleasure in lots of different ways. And that can be a an experience, you know, for lots of different people could be re- uh, connected to religion or spirituality or not. And so I just, I really love how you, how you indicate that because obviously when you unpack it, you're like, well, let's actually, let's go back to what was like originally said. Let's go back to the text and see that this isn't actually the intention. Like that sex negative culture was not a part of it. That has been kind of socially imposed. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit more about like about shame because I've I've had a lot of listeners who who send in questions about it and a lot of kind of my my own doctoral research was kind of unpacking sexual shame and mine was for more of like an intergenerational perspective like a lot of shame around older adults sexuality but a lot of folks when they send in questions it's about like their upbringing as fostering you know sexual and body shame and and from across multiple different you know religious upbringings and beliefs so. Two things that I'm picking up on. I love your direct response and what you just said, but then also like on your Instagram account where you're like, hey, oh, I don't know why you're trying to shame me. I'm still going to be here. Don't shame me. Don't shame my followers. I was just watching your reels. I'm like, yes, yes. So, you know, what do you say? Maybe two-parter. What do you say to people who are experiencing shame about sexuality? Like what advice would you offer them? First, I usually leave with a question because sometimes they're like unpacking their anger and it's like, okay, well, where is this coming from? Um, Why do you think I'm doing something wrong? And then kind of going from there and then kind of taking them on a mini journey, like, well, this is where I got this information from. And do you know that the Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, said this? Or do you know that he used to do this, you know, with his wives? Do you know that the Quran says this? Um, do you know that this is a natural experience? Like in that post, I was talking about squirting and kind of um, helping them kind of do a mini unpack. I know that takes a whole lot of time, but a mini unpack of where are you getting these views from? And those views are not necessarily religious views. So you can still be religious and sexual. Like you, you this is a part of being a human being. Um, so making those notions, you know, clear to them and really clarifying those concepts um, helps them think things through. And if they need to do, you know, more work, then either I will refer them to someone because right now I'm not really doing (laughs) counseling, Um, but just kind of giving them some things to think about um, helps because I don't take it personal because I don't think they just don't know. A lot of them really just don't know. And they just think that what, you know, their viewpoint is the right way. It's like, that's not necessarily right. And even if you still don't agree with me, that's fine. Um, But you shouldn't, you know, look down on me or other Muslims who have this view because it's not against our religion. Was that a fear of yours when you started being more like public, like online sharing your work? Was that a fear around like the backlash and, you know, the perspectives that people would have? No, I actually never thought about it until I think the first day, even when I, the first time when I started, when I did the sex education curriculum for the Muslim youth, when I was getting my nursing degree, I remember the first, my father was like a, te- a treasurer at our mosque, right? So at our religious place of worship. So he's like, oh, I can get you. We're having this dinner. It's this interfaith dinner. You should come with your, um, with your um, classmates and you can share about the study that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time I kind of said everything out loud. So I was on the mic and then I said it. And I was like, wow, I really just said that online <laughs> in front of this whole crowd. So you have all these like religious people. It's like interfaith. So everyone is just looking at me like, okay, like I, I wasn't expecting that. Like, <laughs> So, but after that point, it was just like, okay, we're doing this. You get used to those views and get looked to get used to um, people making faces at you and just help them along. But it was never a fear, I would say, no. Mm, yeah. Well, and, and what I love too about the content that you create is that it's so playful and fun. And I can only imagine that that translates into the workshops that you offer, right? Where it's, as you said, it's, it's you know, when you're talking about sexuality, I think there's yeah, there's a lot of 
taboo and stigma and shame from lots of different aspects of like society and the world and people's perspectives. But I think, you know, being able to offer that in a way that is like enjoyable, like it's pleasurable in the learning itself. And it should be replicating that like in the bedroom. So that that's kind of how how I see when I'm like looking through your feed. I'm like, this is this is like fun and engaging. And it's, you know, I don't feel like I'm receiving like a PSA or something. And like, (laughs) (laughs) but I can imagine, you know, maybe a thought of, you know, you're on to something, like you said, when you got when you the first time you said it out loud, speaking into a microphone and people's responses, it's like, ooh, I'm hitting on to something that's important based on your faces here. And you're kind of shock. Clearly, this is something worth discussing further. I want to ask you as well, you know, you posted the other day, and I just I loved how you how you phrased this, you said, sexuality education is not limited to sexual intercourse. It's a lifelong process of learning information and values essential to our holistic sexual health as human beings. That's what you said. So people are listening, just so you know, I didn't say that. (laughs) And I just love that. I absolutely agree with it. I wonder if you could just unpack that a little bit for me about sex education. It's being more than just about sexual intercourse. Because a lot of people, when they think about sex ed, they think of only vaginal penetration. Like number one, there's different types of sex. Number two, sexuality education is very broad and it includes, you know, a a multitude, like a plethora of topics. And for that one, I was talking for parents, right? So parents who are talking to their children about sex, when they hear that, like, okay, we'll have the birds and bees conversation one time when they're like 15 or 16 and then that's it. It's like, no, like this, number one, it has to be plural, it has to be multiple conversations need to happen. And sexuality is a part of, you know, our everyday life. And it involves a lot of different aspects of us from like, you know, communication and our relationships and our bodies and just so much is beyond just sexual intercourse. So I wanted to kind of make that clear to my audience that, you know, as a sexuality educator, there's so many different things to talk about, to touch on, especially for parents who are educating their children. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I kind of want to ask you about is that, you know, you and I as sex educators, like we have different opinions on a few things. And some of those being, you know, sex before marriage. And I don't want to make assumptions. I don't know. But in terms of like gender identity and sexual orientation, like kind of differing opinions. And I think for me, you know, as a bisexual woman and as someone who teaches from a from a queer inclusive lens, I'm wondering, like, what do you think in terms of the sexual health education space? Like, is there room for all of these diverse perspectives? And with my audience? Maybe in, in the context of, uh, maybe let's think about like online content, like if we're receiving content about sex education, like what do you think about that of having lots of differing views on sex education? Like, is there room for us to hold all of those simultaneously? Or do you think people should kind of be like, oh, this feels, you know, the most aligned with my beliefs, I'll follow this. I'm just kind of interested, like, what what do you think around those lines? Yeah, I think sexuality education sh- should not just be painted with one brush. I think some important concepts that we can incorporate in each platform, but just like how as human beings, we're all unique and we have different values and different beliefs and everything, um, sexuality education can be tailored for you. So it can look, so I think it looks, it will look different definitely for my audience as opposed to, you know, your audience, um, just because of the way how we interact with the world. So things that I need may not be necessarily, you know, what your audience needs or 
we're going to be aligned on, on some things, um, but not everything. So I think it's okay to diversify it based on your audience, like knowing your audience and knowing, okay, this will work for them. Kind of like, you know, when you go to like a buffet line, you're going to pick what you want. <laughs> we all have to eat and we all need food and we're going to pick food that we need, but I'm not going to eat everything and neither are you. Uh, or maybe you do want everything, but I don't want everything. So I'm going to, you know, take what I need. Mm. I I love that that metaphor, right? That That's very apt as in we all need to eat because we're all human beings, but we get to decide you know, what we're putting in our bodies, what information we're taking in. And I think maybe what I'm thinking about, thinking back to your quote before talking to parents, is that it's a lifelong process. So it's not saying that, okay, if we're sticking with this metaphor of being at the buffet, you know, I, right now I'm like super into seafood. I'll, I'll give me all of the salmon, give me the prawns. doesn't mean that later in my life I'm not going to be like, yeah, that's not really what's right for me. I'm thinking, you know what, I'm leaning towards the salads. I'm feeling a few, you know, like some fresh crudite or something. But – uh, maybe I'll get off of the food metaphor now. <laughs> you could see you, you struck a chord with me. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, like I, I, what I think I really like about that is, is recognizing that you don't necessarily have to agree with everyone that as a sex educator is giving you. And what I, what I think I really appreciate about you and I having this conversation as well is that respect for the the mutual work that we are engaged in. And recognizing that what makes it so beautiful and diverse is that we are going to come from these different perspectives because you can't just have one type of sex educator for the world. You need to have lots of different sex educators to meet people where they're at and where they will be throughout their lives. I don't know if there's a question in there, but maybe thoughts? <laughs> I totally agree. I think you you definitely said it very well. I totally agree that, yeah, we just need more because I feel like we need more of us because there's so many people um, who can learn from people who they identify with. Mm-hmm. So I'm um, I'm wondering as well, you know, to because um, it's it's interesting. I'm I'm I, I wish I had more analytics on like who specifically listened to the podcast, but based on what listeners have sent in, I've had a lot of Muslim listeners send me in their questions, and what I find interesting is I'm like, I'm I'm honored that you're sending me your questions. But I'm obviously not an expert in this, like if we're talking about sexual health. So I wonder kind of in your own work uh, to, to non-Muslim listeners, again, from holding different diverse perspectives, like, is there something from your approach as a, a sexual health educator that, that you think is maybe universal for folks? I think it's important for everyone to kind of hold close to what they value and to kind of lead with that and not look at it as, um, I know it's kind of cliche, but kind of just really staying true to yourself and kind of using that to navigate sexuality. So kind of using that, if this feels good or something that you want to try or something that you want to do or something that you're interested in, taking time to kind of do what you want to do and not really focusing on what other so what someone else is trying to steer you or what someone else is trying to make you do or what someone else, um, they may have different interests from you. Um, but you kind of just leading in and really reflecting on what is it that you want with, out of your sex life? What is it that you want to try something new that you want to do? Or maybe you like your nor- your everyday way of doing it. That's also fine too. Um, and not comparing your 
sex life, I guess, to others and what you may see in the media. Um, because what, whatever it is that you want, go for that. I love that. And I think, I think quite often when it comes to sex education, sometimes we get like, you know, this is the information, this is what the science says, but we're not leading from our values. And I think that's something that is is a missed conversation. What I really respect about the work that you do of being like, you know, sexuality is not just like a thing that we do with our bodies. Like it is connected to all sorts of other things. And that in some of the books that you and I both recommend, such as Come As You Are by Dr. Emily Nagoski, it's about, you know, what's going on in our mind, what's going on in our context, like what's socially, emotionally, and that is impacting our sex lives. And I just think that nuance in the conversation is often missing. It's like, you know, here's contraception or here's this, but we're not actually talking about the larger context in which that exists. Does that sound about about right? Yes, yes. Yeah. That's fantastic. I just, I, I really appreciate, you know, your time and the, and the work that you do. And I wonder, is there, is there a last, maybe not piece of advice or plug or something that you'd like people to know, maybe about the work that you do and, uh, and why, why you are the halal sexpert? Um, I guess one thing I think is important because, you know, I just finished the master's human sexuality program. And when I went into that space, a lot of my classmates were like, afraid to talk to me because they had bad experiences with religion. So when they saw me, they see me the way I show up. Um, they were just like, you know, like, why are you here? Because <laughs> you don't need, like, it was kind of like everyone in the sexuality program was against religion. Like, just like, you know, abstinence out the window. No one's doing that. We're just throwing all of that shameful sex that out. And I understand like in the past, it was very shameful. It was very, you know, scare tactic and fear-based and that wasn't right. Um, but people still have values and beliefs. And so I would challenge anyone who has that kind of view to look at religion as like, if you ever had a friend who was a vegan, and I always tell this story to kind of help them. Like if you had a friend who was a vegan, for example, let's say they were trying to get pregnant and they finally got pregnant and, you know, they really were trying. Um, But then towards their pregnancy, they find out that their like iron levels are really low and their doctor is like, okay, well, you need to figure out how you can get your protein, um, even though you're a vegan. And it's like, if they came to you with this problem, would you invite them over for dinner and just have a whole bunch of meat? (laughs) And just like, well, you need to get your iron levels up. Like, it doesn't matter. Like you wanted this baby, you have this baby. Are you going to research ways in which they can still hold true to their values about other plant-based protein to increase their protein levels? So they can still, yes, they want this baby. (laughs) Yes, they want, you know, this pregnancy, but they don't want to just throw everything that they, you know, everything they value out the window. Um, So that's kind of like how it is with sexuality for religious people. We still want to have a pleasurable experience, um, but we still have different boundaries and different guidelines that we don't want to cross because, you know, our religion is very important to us. Um, So realizing that, realizing that we don't feel oppressed, that we're not, negative about it like this is something that we love and we want to be able to you know navigate through um sexuality with while still holding true to our bodies um so that's how a lot of muslim youth feel a lot of parents uh, so i don't want you to think that they're missing out or we're like oppressed and a lot of the world view of a lot of muslims now is that you know we're oppressed and all of that um so just to kind of remember that analogy like this is important to us um, and a lot of religious people kind of have that view, like, yeah, I want to have a pleasurable experience, but I also want to still hold to, true to my religion and that they can do that. Hmm. 
that's that's just fantastic. I think weaving those together, I think you're so right. There's just this belief that if you are, and and we say like religious, there's obviously so many different religions in the world, but we have this opinion that if you are religious, then you can't also be sexually liberated. And we know that that's, that's not true. Those are not synonymous with each other. So I thank you so much for saying that, indicating that. I think, you know, I think I've definitely been, um, have have not necessarily like demonized certain religions, but I think there's definitely a way where we don't talk about that enough to make sure that when we are teaching, we're aware of the fact that, you know, we need to be able to teach people where they're at and from a variety of different perspectives to make sure that we're not like guiding them towards one perspective or the other. It's, you know, this is the information. And now it's, I empower you to make the choice that's going to be right for you based on what values and beliefs that you hold. Yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. I just like, oh, my, my, my head is so full right now. And I, I just so appreciate your, your expertise. Dr. Shakira Abdullah, thank you so, so much for, for joining me today. You're welcome. It was an honor to be here. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of the podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Amy C. Moores all about consensual non-monogamy. If you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or send a voice message to me on Instagram at dr.leahtidy. And even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual. <laughs>